0: This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie sits down with blogger, speaker, and author Deacon Greg Kandra. Greg spent nearly three decades in broadcast journalism, mostly as a writer and producer at CBS News for programs including 48 Hours, 60 Minutes 2, Sunday Morning, and the CBS Evening News with Katie Kirk, with work also on the hit reality series Survivor. His blog, The Deacon's Bench, has garnered some 20 million readers from around the world since its inception in 2007. In this episode, Deacon Greg reflects on his time with CBS News and how he felt God calling him to use his gifts to do more with his life. He also shares insights from his new book, Befriending St. Joseph, as well as the importance of rediscovering joy and gratitude in our lives. One of the things that I tried to drive home when I spoke to the priest in Cleveland was the idea of gratitude and living a life of gratitude no matter what happens no matter what's going on you know solanus casey used to tell people thank god ahead of time because blessings are coming and whether you're aware of them or not they will be there and always always at the beginning and the end of every day thank god for what he's giving you what he's going to give you the good the bad and the ugly because there is grace in everything if we look for it and we need to appreciate what we've got
1: this is living the call Deacon Greg Kander, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Are you uh, in Orlando yet? No, no, I'm still in Queens. (laughs) When does that move happen? Uh, Well, we have to sell our home first. Oh, got it. Okay, so you're still uh, maybe a ways away. Yeah, it's uh,
0: not a great time to be doing that, (laughs) I gotta tell you.
1: By all appearances. uh,
0: You know, I was thinking last year, well, this will be our last Christmas in New York. Mm. No, not really.
1: (laughs) It it, it is one of those places where Christmas is, uh, and I don't know if it's a question of maybe the environment, because at least when you think of New York, I think of New York City. But um, the times that I would go there for work, and you and I have a similar background in the media industry, and I would travel to New York constantly. In fact, some years of my career, you know, 40 plus times a year, And when Christmas happened, it was just so visible, you know, it was so um, and it was so, you know, it's kind of has this sort of movie quality to it. I don't know if that's still the case. I haven't been there in a couple of years, but I can assume perhaps it still is.
0: Yeah, the whole atmosphere and character of the city changes. It it becomes a lot prettier. And uh, Christmas decorations everywhere, holiday decorations. Mm. Everyone's getting ready for Hanukkah now. Uh, they had the big lighting of the Rockefeller Center tree uh, several days back. I can remember when that wouldn't happen until the middle of December, and now it's happening right after Thanksgiving. So. Yeah. Are
1: you uh, – <laughs> where's your uh, sort of philosophical take on uh, when – Christmas, uh, you know, things pointing to Christmas should begin, because this is a very hot topic in certain places. It's like we got to, you know, wait until the right moment or, you know, I I see in retail locations now it's almost Halloween, Thanksgiving and Christmas kind of coexisting in certain places.
0: Yeah, I did a, uh, I preached about this, excuse me, where I I say that we've conflated Advent and Christmas and created Cradvent. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and just just like people have these desserts tiramisu and turducken where they mush everything together and sure. create something new and i i was struck when i was watching the the lighting of the rockefeller tree and everybody, they sang joy to the world and everybody said, Hey, it's Christmas. And I wanted to scream. No, it's not. <clears throat> not yet. Wait.
1: Yeah. Hold on a sec. Boy, my yeah. wife, my wife would really love to hear that. She's, she actually plays Advent music and she's always on about, you know, the proper, uh, you know, the recognition of, of these kind of liturgical moments. They're important. I mean, they kind of mark where we're at, right? I mean, you, you can make too much of them, but you can also ignore them.
0: Yeah and I think advent helps give another dimension to christmas. It it really sets up the the right attitude and the right mm-hmm. emotion that we should be having of of waiting and praying and and a little bit of silence please mm-hmm. <laughs> before we get into the craziness of of the holidays.
1: It's we just moved to a new parish. I don't know if I mentioned this to you in our earlier conversation but I I was reassigned to a parish here in Los Angeles and um one of the things I noticed with my new pastor is that at the universal prayer, which for those who don't know is sort of these moment in the in the Catholic Mass that where there's a general petition. So there are prayers for a number of different um uh things. Uh but normally we, you know, the the tradition is or what people are used to is, you know, Lord hear our prayer and you know, that kind of response. But during the Advent season, our pastor um, you know, asked the congregation to sort of respond in their hearts in silence. In other words, the 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 way that the universal prayers are prayed, and the deacon does this uh usually in the context of the mass it, there there is no call to response it's it's I, like literally I'll go up there and I'll say, you know, pray for whatever the thing is, and then there's a moment of silence and I thought that was really interesting, you know, to your point, because we don't have a lot of it period in our lives and 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 increasingly in some places, not a lot of it even in the liturgy. So it's nice to kind of have those moments. And it it kind of stuck out to me because I wasn't used to it, you know, uh, in this new parish.
0: And especially now with the the frenzy of Christmas, we are so easily distracted by all the marketing and the capitalism and the carols that are bombarding us. Uh, I remember not too long ago reading that Mariah Carey had this big streaming event on November 1st (laughs) to announce that, hey, it's the Christmas season is officially being launched. And again, I wouldn't say, no, no, not yet. That's
1: way too early. I think she's got something to gain in, in that one, <laughs> yeah. given given how uh, noted she is. Do you ever think about that, though, in terms of, I mean, like, do you ever reflect on your media background? So you spent a ton of time in major broadcasters, big outfits, CBS. You've got a super decorated background in terms of, you know, documentary uh, things and all kinds of platforms. You've, you, people can obviously look you up. And most people, you know, who listen to this show probably already know who you are. But do you ever have this sort of um, kind of moment of conflict where you look at all the noise that's out there? To your point, and you kind of say, "Well, gee, I helped build some of that," because that happens to me a lot. And you know, f- full disclaimer before you even answer: I was in the sort of naughty part of the business, <clears throat> which is the advertising part of it. You were in the real part of the business, right, with creating the content and doing all that stuff. But sometimes I think about that. It's like, wow, these platforms and all this noise that's out there. You know, in a way I kind of participated in building that. is that does that ever like does that ever hit you?
0: yeah, and you know one of the one of the impulses that I had when I decided that I wanted to be a deacon was I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Mm. And there was a part of me when I was working uh, at cBS where I thought this is part of the problem, and this is something that I really. I I want to pull away from and devote myself to doing something different and something that is a little more God centric and maybe use my talents in a way that God would want me to.
1: Do you, um, do you look at what's going on today in media and look at it differently than maybe when you were in the mix in, in, in your career? Like how has it changed?
0: Oh yeah. It's, it's become a lot more fractured. It is a lot more, compartmentalized, as I've said when I've given talks about this, we're at a point now where you can gravitate toward the kinds of media that you want that will tell you what you want to hear mm. and have your own biases confirmed and have your own uh, you know particular agenda uh, affirmed. And it didn't used to be that way. Um, when I first got into the business 40 years ago, you had ABC, NBC, and CBS, and that was it. You had... Charles and Walter and Tom Brokaw, uh, or um, Dan (laughs) and uh, Tom Brokaw and Peter Jennings. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's so different now. Uh, You can get the reality that you want and you can get the truth that you want and have your own particular agendas affirmed. And I think that's, that's contributed to a lot of the problems we're having now. People are so splintered. And so polarized, and the media doesn't help that.
1: Mm. It's like an echo chamber. and you know, there, there was always, I guess, the danger of that in the past if people who are I only read the New York Times or I only read The Wall Street Journal, but now, to your point, it's it, it kind of like is reflected in all the media that I see is now really tailored, you know, kind of targeted to me, people, people will come across this when they're searching for, I don't know, whatever, uh, you know, a a dog bowl or or a pair of skis. And then they go on some other website and they're getting ads for those products on other websites constantly. Right. So like this idea of kind of tailoring the experience, are there, are there platforms that you think about out there now that like concern you from an evangelical perspective, like just the platform itself, even aside from the content, or is it mostly about the content?
0: It's mostly about the content, and it's the information that we choose to put out there. Um, You have some extremists on both sides, um, and I'm not going (laughs) to dignify them by naming them, but there Mm. are places that profess to be Catholic that really aren't, Mm. that are actually so critical of the church, they are anti-Catholic. And they create a feeling of hostility and negativity and constant criticism of the Pope and the bishops and the you know, the, the efforts in the church that are happening right now and see everything that is happening in a very negative light. And I think that's so destructive and uh sort of counter, uh, I think it was Mark Shea who described it as the charism of anti-evangelization. Hmm. And it's very dangerous and very poisonous. I'm, I don't know if they're completely aware of what they're doing and how destructive that is.
1: Yeah no i'm not I'm not sure either and that's that's definitely out there um, I, I, I don't know if you I think you actually posted about um, the Holy Father's recent interview in America, this like long range sort of interview that he did and one of the questions that struck me, which I don't know what your what your your take is on this, but was the question about the the uh, usccB which the question for those who haven't read it, it was something along the lines of you know how should what the Holy father's perspective was on people having negative opinions about the kind of you know USCCB which is the governing body of the American bishops here in the US and and the post response was kind of striking in the fact that he said that Jesus didn't ordain bishops conferences you know he ordained yeah. pastors or ordained bishops and this this kind of like call to sort of away from platform or away from organization as a method of of connecting with people because we've gotten really used to that whether it's TikTok or you know Facebook or whatever it might be or an organization rather than sort of what are we doing how are we living that sort of christian life
0: yeah and you know we can be so caught up in these these bureaucratic structures that we forget really how the church began mm. and it was one on one it was let me tell you some good news and that was what persuaded people and converted the world and we can get so caught up in systems and programs and I spoke about this a little bit uh, a few weeks back. I spoke at the convocation for priests in Cleveland, and my keynote was all about rediscovering something that I think has been forgotten about in the church—the great uh, uh, forgotten secret in the church, which is joy. Mm. And we can become so caught up in you know getting these programs done and getting this thing accomplished that we forget the joy of the gospel. Mm. And that's, I think it's something intrinsic to to Francis and the way that he operates. And he wrote an apostolic exhortation that's called right. the joy of the gospel. And I think we need to remember that.
1: I want to go back to the subject of joy because I was going to talk about that, right? This idea of rediscovering joy, rediscovering that secret of the church. And I don't know if this is the case. I'm going to throw it out there and tell me what you think. But um, there, there's there is in the sort of popular culture, a lot of emphasis on the notion of happiness. And of course, happiness is itself a good, and, you know, who wouldn't want to be happy and want others to be happy, right? But there, there's sort of less um, understanding or talk about the notion of joy. And And what I've come across in my life is that happiness, and it depends on how you define these things, but for me, happiness seems to be a bit more ephemeral, a bit more transient, a bit more kind of peaks and valleys and you know, in its worst incarnation can kind of lead you to seeking things that make you happy. And some of those things aren't good, right? Um, whereas joys is maybe a little bit different. Can you talk a, bit, a little bit about how sort of maybe from that talk, but how do you define these things and people understand the difference?
0: Well, one of the things that I, I tried to drive home uh, when I spoke to the priest in Cleveland was the idea of gratitude mm. and living a life of gratitude no matter what happens, no matter what's going on, you know, Solanus Casey used to tell people, thank God ahead of time Mm. because blessings are coming. And whether you're aware of them or not, they will be there. And always, always at the beginning and the end of every day, thank God for what he's giving you, what he's going to give you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because there is grace in everything Mm. if we look for it. And we need to appreciate what we've got. And I think so often we take things that we've been given for granted. Um, especially here in the West. And I think that's another part of our ongoing problem with the way that we live is we've become so accustomed to having things a certain way and having things our way. And the idea of uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is really life, liberty, and the pursuit of what I want. Yeah. Um, And we've forgotten in a lot of ways, and I see this in our public servants as well, that uh, a lot of what we should be focusing on is what I can do for others and and service and of course this is something intrinsic to the diaconal vocation um but i I was complaining the other day to someone that so many of the people that we've elected are in it for themselves yeah. and they've forgotten the idea of giving back to the country that has given them so mm. much um the idea of public service is you know you don't hear about that so much anymore Mm-mm. people may give it lip service but you wonder how much are they really doing for the good of their fellow man and, and for the nation that has given them so much.
1: I think about that um, with respect to some of the I, had, I have conversations with my business colleagues all the time about most of them are not Catholic. So we have a lot of conversations about politics and different things like that. And one of the conversations that I had was about public servants um, And, you know, you hear these stories of people that are in the same role, they're a governor, they're a congressperson or a senator whatever for 40, 50, 60 years sometimes. And, you know, you start wondering, like, what other professions exist out there where, I mean, I suppose maybe medicine or academia might be one, but there are very few where you can stay really engaged and at the same level of, uh, uh, you know, fervor, I guess, maybe for a job. And, you know, sadly, you can imagine a lot of things kind of creep in and it begins to get a little warped in terms of what you're doing it for. It, it, It probably isn't the same for you when you were 30 as a congressperson as when you're 80, you know, and yet you've been fundamentally in the same kind of position. So I can, I mean, I can, I can see some of that that you're describing. And it's a, it's a very powerful temptation. I would imagine, I would imagine if you're, you know, if you get to, you know, write laws and cameras are always on you and that kind of thing that maybe that's part of it. But, but I do agree that that whole idea of public service, um, is often lost. Yeah. And you can see it
0: sometimes in different aspects, in different places in the church too. Yeah. Uh, where, uh, people lose sight of why we're really doing this mm. and getting back to to the root of everything, which is the gospel and serving one another. And um, people can become ambitious and uh, and power hungry, yeah. and it, it, it can be a mess. And it's important to stay connected to where it all began and why we're doing this. Uh, uh, there's a priest in my parish who always says, never forget that this is all about the salvation of souls. Amen. Uh, and that's, you know, something I try to think about every day. (laughs) It's the
1: final canon in the book of the canon law, right? It's like, this is all good, but it all points us in one direction. What, what's your, uh, so here's another thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of what's your, what's your thought. And maybe as you're moving, as you're thinking about moving or contemplating moving to a different location, this has you know, come up for you, but what, you know, what should the church's response and role institutionally, not, not individually, you know, be to certain things. I'll give you one, for instance, here in Los Angeles, and I presume is the case in both your current home and potentially your future home. The issue of homelessness is a, is a major, major deal. And uh, my wife and I run a ministry in half for 20 plus years where we serve and uh, uh, and accompany homeless families, We're very focused on families. And, um, you know, here a couple of years ago, they instituted a process in LA to basically centralize homeless services through a 211 phone number. So it's like 911 for the police, but if you happen to be homeless or find yourself about to be, you're supposed to call 211. And in our own ministry, we found that even though the the that's a, you know, you can see how that was a well-intentioned thing, what it's created is a lot of obstacles in our service of our homeless and unhoused, you know, brothers and sisters. And, you know, my wife has said, well, and she's a convert, right? So she doesn't have a lot of the baggage I do about, you know, what the church is and all that. You know she 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 really grieves a little bit about how a lot of these solutions or these opportunities to to serve really need to come from the church, right? The church should be the sort of the centerpiece, maybe not a you know new nine one one number, you know um and you know we see that individually in ministries, and I know people and and there's lots of great apostolates and everything else. but but how do you view like where we need to do? you know, more or differently today, um, given where we are?
0: Well, I think that's a good point. And and you raise an interesting problem. Um, Again, particularly in our country, we have become so accustomed to uh, the the state being able to solve our problems Mm. and not as uh, interested in what uh, nonprofits can do or what charities can do or what the church can do. And I think we all need to be more invested in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and to look for ways to find solutions, you know, right in our own backyard. Um, Mother Teresa used to tell people, find your own Calcutta. Mm. And there is, everybody has a Calcutta. Calcutta is in your own backyard. And as I like to remind people when I'm, I'm preaching retreats, I mention this and I say, it's more than just people who are Poor and hungry, because yeah. there are many kinds of poverty and there are many kinds of hunger. Oh yeah, and I think we, as a people, as a church, as as clergy, as ministers, need to recognize that. And um, when I had the the talk with the uh, the priests in Cleveland, I I had to keep going back to this, but I, I challenged them. I said, uh, break up into little groups like we Catholics always do, and I, I want you to talk about what the Calcuttas are in Cleveland? Mm. What are the places where there is suffering and hardship and hurt and pain? And what can be done or what is being done to try and alleviate that? And I've got some great answers, mm. um, particularly one area that they are finding needs attention and needs, uh, you know, an area of, of poverty that needs to be helped is with young people and sexual identity. Yeah. And they're trying to minister to these people spiritually um, as and and nourish them and to help them and help them feel less alone, which I thought was beautiful. And, you know, we have to, to think outside the box sometimes and think of what are the other Calcuttas out there that, that we can help with. I love that. And by the way, the, yeah. the
1: the harvest is plentiful in that regard. I saw a stat just recently about the percentage of Generation Z, and I believe Generation Alpha, the one that comes behind it, who have some question about their sexual identity relative to previous generations on the same question. And so it looked at, um, you know, Boomers, uh, Gen X, Millennials, Gen Z, and Alpha, and compared those. And the percentage, if I recall correctly, was something on the order of 20% in the Generation Alpha or or Generation Z that had some question trouble concern whatever about their sexual identity and in in the previous generations that came behind it it was in the single digits as a percentage and so there's a lot of this calcutta that's out in the world right now um and i i love the way you put it too because it's not the margins which is another francis kind of way of describing it right going out to the margins is not always the person who maybe homeless or on the street or poor or whatever in that in that very visible way, sometimes it can be something very different. I would say a Calcutta in Los Angeles, frankly, is Hollywood. I, I would say it might be Bel Air because, you know, where are some of those, who who are those folks going to hear the gospel from? Who are they going to interact with in a sense of, of accompaniment? Who's going to introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ? Like those might be some of the Calcuttas here in addition to, of course, Skid Row and, you know, places like that, but we don't tend to think of it that way.
0: Yeah. um, And again, I remember Mother Teresa also once said that some of the poorest people she has met live in Beverly Hills. Yeah, And, you know, there's a a, a spiritual poverty and depletion. And some of that comes from uh, having everybody tell you what you want to (laughs) hear. Some of it comes from when you get all the things that you've wanted, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And um, it's, it's sad, really. Uh, and it's it's pervasive, I think.
1: I'm sure you've done both. But if you had to kind of pick your Calcutta that you've mostly served in in New York, what would you say that was? Oh. <laughs> well, There's well, lots I to think, go d- around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, my Calcutta, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back on it, was uh, working in a television newsroom. Mm. Um, and I was a little bit surprised. There's a story that I tell. Um, of one Ash Wednesday. It was before I was ordained, the last one, but right before my ordination. And it was Ash Wednesday. And I went into the newsroom with ashes and I had a little container of ashes. And I sent around an email to people all around the building. And I said, it's Ash Wednesday. I have ashes. And if anybody would like to receive them, I'm going to be in this office between 12 and 1. We had 30 people who showed up.
1: Well, that's beautiful.
0: Including including the president of CBS News, wow. who was at that time Sean McManus, who is now the president of CBS Sports. Um, and one thing it, it made me realize, and I tell this to people so that they realize, is that, uh, you know, it's not like television and network news is this, you know, godless wasteland. Hmm. There are a lot of people of faith who work in the news business and people who got into it uh, really as a calling and as a matter of conscience, wanting to do something good and to to spread truth. And they live honorable lives. Uh, It wouldn't be uncommon on a Monday morning to see all the producers of the CBS Evening News sitting in the fishbowl, which was what they called the big glass room where they had all their meetings, uh, over their morning coffee, talking about what they heard their ministers say mm. uh, on Sunday. And when I was there, the, all the writers for the CBS Evening News, for Katie Couric, were all Catholic. Wow. And uh, the editor, in fact, was a graduate of Fordham. So uh, there, is, there are people of faith in the news business. And I, I came to realize, really after I had left CBS, that part of my role uh, part of why I was there was to sort of be leaven in that, Amen, and to bear witness to my faith in whatever small <clears throat> ways that I could. Um, and it was great. I mean, uh, Katie Couric used to call me Father Greg, <laughs> which was funny. <laughs> she didn't quite get it, but okay, right. you know, she understood.
1: <laughs> was that before you were ordained or after?
0: Uh, this was uh, this was after.
1: Oh, okay, after. So after. slightly more understandable in that context, but yeah, yeah,
0: uh, yeah I, and. Sh- she mm-hmm. was a Presbyterian, um, raised Presbyterian, and she went to the uh, red brick church, which is a big uh, church in Manhattan, and mm. she would talk about that sometimes.
1: I think the so. thing I take from that is also the fact that you, um, you know, you responded and took some, took and took an action, right? I mean, because I agree with you. I think there are lots of people of faith, and frankly, a lot of people of just goodwill, even if they, if they're not, if they wouldn't describe themselves as people of faith, in the media industry. But in my experience, they generally have their kind of heads down a little bit. Right. Um, And it takes, you know, it takes something like that. I thought you were going to tell me that the HR person came and knocked on your door and said, Hey, (laughs) no, uh, no religion in the workplace. But,
0: but, you know, that was, that was 12 years ago that I did that. I don't know if that would still be able to do that today. Who knows?
1: Who knows? But, but I do think that, you know, we have to have a balanced view of these things because, um, you know, it's not that it's some, like you said, a kind of a wasteland of of depravity, um, but, you know, and neither is it, you know, a place of necessarily devotion. What what I found is, and I was in kind of the, the digital side of the business m- most of my career, well, really all of my career in terms of, you know, new platforms and trying to disrupt TV and radio and all of that. And what I found is, you know, it moved very fast. So maybe there was just a lot of things about people we never got a chance to learn because of the pace of the environment but generally speaking um, there were people of faith but it took something to bring them together one of them in my life was frankly my ordination which was which was wild because i didn't like notify everybody via email hey i'm going to go through this i was working at a startup then in in los angeles and we had maybe 50 60 people and um but eventually some of my my closer colleagues who knew about these kind of things uh, you know asked me about it And they found out like the date and all that other stuff. And I was blown away. There was probably, I'd say seven or eight of them that came to my ordination at the cathedral. None of them, zero of them Catholic. And um, there was one who I guess had, you know, was born Catholic, but didn't practice. And none of them had ever been to the cathedral. And literally our office was like three blocks from it. Right. And they're walking in here and the conversations, the, 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 just, just everything that happened afterwards was like amazing. And uh, as you know, after ordination, the deacons or, or when, when you're ordained a priest, you go out and you, do your ble- you give blessings to the people who have attended, who, who, who want to be blessed. And I had this sort of out of body experience when I'm sitting there giving my first blessings and I'm blessing this group of, you know, Silicon Beach startup founder guys who like have never set foot in a church and I'm giving them a blessing. But, it, you know, it wouldn't happen without that opportunity.
0: That's great. That's beautiful. And it's, you know, another uh, reminder of how surprising God can be.
1: Mm, yeah. Do you think your writing style is going to evolve or change if and when you do move?
0: Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I've been doing this long enough. I think <laughs> I'm, I'm set in my ways. I may. F- I'll probably find different things to write about. Um, you know, the experience of, of being in New York, uh, yeah, You know, can't help but, but color what I do and, and what I observe and what I experience and what I write about. Um, and I don't think, you know, I'll be uh, running into some colorful characters on the subway <laughs> in Florida. <laughs> uh, I'll probably write a lot about tourists. You might. Yeah, they might be colorful, so. but
1: there's not going to be any subways. Yeah. yeah. No. Do you, do you uh, as you think about that potential move, do you think that like can you imagine what the Calcuttas might be down there? It's interesting.
0: It's it's going to be something I'm going to have to discover. Mm. Uh, one of the things that's impressed me uh, as I've been down there and uh, meeting people and and going around is people in that part of the country, uh, certainly in Central Florida, seem to be a lot more unabashed about their faith. Mm. And um, there's uh, you know they're they're not afraid to to talk about when they went to church and where they went. And you go into gift shops and you see signs with prayers on them. And, uh, there was one shop that I went into, my wife and I were down in Winter Garden, Florida, um, about a year ago was right after Easter. And there was a shop that had a prayer or a, um, an intention chapel. Mm -hmm. It was was a secular store, but had one side of it devoted to, you could write what you wanted people to pray for and just tack it on the wall. Just, you know, a, a random thing. I would never see something like that, uh, in New York. Um, but of course new York is is all about diversity, and it's mm-hmm. um it's, it's not quite as uh, the same demographic, I guess as as you would find in Florida.
1: I've had some of my richest sort of spiritual experiences in New York, ironically enough. I, I, I traveled so much in my career to New York that St. Patrick's was like my parish away from home. And I would go to other parishes like, you know, I know you and I both are, are fans of Thomas Merton and I, I you know, I, I, rolled all the way up to, I think that's in the upper, is it west or east side, but to Corpus Christi in the hundreds somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just to kind of where walk. He where he was baptized. Yeah. And yeah. What, where he had some of his uh, kind of inspirations to even join, even come into the church and, and, and tons of other parishes, uh, the St. Francis one, the I think a uh, Holy Innocence maybe, or there's, there's one in, um, in Murray Hill that I would go to all the time because that was close to our our offices uh, in Manhattan. So I had, re- and those were just parish-based experiences, but just everyday experiences, things on the subway, things. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you told me another a story just recently about a guy you interacted with on the street, but it's that kind of thing because there's just so much, there's so many people and it's easy, you know, it's not all, uh, you know, spiritual, uh, you know, peaches and cream because there's a lot of just you know, blinders on and kind of ignoring everybody next to you because there's so many people, but at the same time, you get a ton of opportunity, you know, to like live this, this faith.
0: Yeah. And something I like to mention, uh, when I'm giving deacon retreats is to remember that, remember when and how God called you. Hmm. And he called you at a particular moment in time, at a particular moment in your life, at a particular place where you were living for a reason. You know, there's a reason why I became a deacon, you know, in the early 2000s while I was living in New York and Queens and why I didn't feel this kind of call when I was living in Maryland where I grew up. Uh, God
1: had wants you to be at a particular place for a particular reason. Yeah, Time and sp- Well, and I think in your own journey, at least from what I recall from our initial conversation, there was – you know a moment of inflection maybe where that call became more more clear to you or where things began to change in those early knots around 911 uh, right. and and you know i my brother lived um actually lived in queens at that time as well he lived in uh, i think it was in, in astoria or maybe he was still in, in greenpoint I, I don't i don't know but he was he was living in new york um and it was a absolute game changer kind of moment for him. He ended up, he's now a Benedictine priest, he's a monk, but, but, you know, same for you. It seemed like that was a moment that kind of marked the earth in terms of what, you know, what's happening and kind of created an aperture to these other sort of discoveries in your own life.
0: Yeah. I, I tell people my vocation really began on nine 11 and my experience of that working in the news business, living in New York city, Being surrounded by the aftermath of that for weeks and weeks and weeks and, uh, you know, seeing it up close and personal really made me look into myself and ask, what am I doing with the rest of my life? And is there more that God wants me to do because everything can be gone in a heartbeat Mm. Um, and being reminded of that every day Um, and even, you know, just a few days after the towers fell. I live about 10 miles east of where the World Trade Center was and walking down the street to run some errands. And you could smell the smoke from, uh, from, uh, ground zero. It had drifted over into Queens. Uh, so it was, it was very much a part of my life and helped shape and redirect my life. It's, uh, one of the mysteries of of that experience.
1: A lot of people don't, you know, whom, and even some of our audience may not, I don't know, maybe not have even been alive to, to, to like experience that. But what struck you coming out of, obviously there was the, just the, the the terrible event itself and the carnage and the death and all of that was impactful as it is. But what struck you about the community vis-a-vis your vocation? Like what, what struck you after this in terms of how people, Responded or reacted to one another, or or, or like how how the, how did the feeling or the sense change after that?
0: Well, yeah, in in New York City for the first uh, couple of weeks, and I don't know how long this extended uh, afterward. I would walk home at the end of the day from uh, my office at CBS on West Fifty Seventh Street, and walking down West Fifty Seventh toward the subway at twilight, and everybody had candles in their windows mm. and American flags. And there were posters and banners and whatnot, uh, you know, praising uh, our heroes. And uh, there was a sense of all of us being invested in this somehow and all of us being affected by it. And there was a unity uh, within the city, which is was incredible. I'd never experienced or seen anything like that. And uh, a sense of collective grief and and sorrow. And I relived that a little bit when I went down to the 9-11 Museum, mm. which every American should try and visit if you're ever in New York, because it brings it all back and really reminds us what it was like and just how awful it was for that short moment of time. And like you said, there are so many people. I find it hard to believe. It's been you know over 20 years, and there are people who are not alive and people who are too young to remember. Uh, and I imagine it was that way, of course, after Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor. After, the Ken, after the Kennedy assassination. Um, but it's still so fresh for a lot of us, and uh, you know, we need to remind people of what that was like and uh, what what happened to us uh, on that day.
1: Yeah, it's always interesting, and and also very very Christian. The idea of you know sometimes these these moments or these events, which are objectively you know wrong or difficult or even evil can be in a way sort of the beginning of that unification or that changing of the chip, you know, that kind of gets us away from our distraction and refocused on, on some, on on the things that are meaningful, right? If you think about it, spiritually, the crucifixion, not a good day, right? We, we killed God and, um, but nevertheless, through that, that crucifixion, you know, the opportunity for for salvation for all of us in this great kind of Christian community.
0: Yeah. And uh, I often talk about this when I tell my vocation story, that this was a, a way that God brought light out of darkness. Hmm. And I'm sure that there are a lot of other vocations that were born out of this also, and other people whose lives were impacted in very profound, personal ways that that redirected everything that they're about. And that made them look at their lives differently and reassess. And I think we're seeing that also uh, in a different way with the aftermath of COVID. Mm. And, uh, you know, being on lockdown for so long, I think people gained an appreciation for for one another and for our world and, um, you know, for things that are so
1: fleeting uh, in a way that we hadn't. That's the thing, though, is that we sometimes we forget, you know, it takes it takes like a couple of uh, decades. And then suddenly the, those lessons sadly begin to uh, to wane because I, I would look at where we are right now and say that there's tons of division and tons of fractioning and, and polarization and these and these kind of difficult things that exist out there were at that moment, which was also pre, you know, pre iPhone. Um, uh, which I kind of lay a lot of the, you know, that's a moment of inflection in my chronology is like iPhone, you know, and it's like a lot of these things that happen afterwards, but we, we kind of tend to forget, um, you know, in time generationally, our memory is not necessarily very good about these things because again, we live in a culture that's so fast paced and and moves so quickly. Have you, have you ever, I know you do pilgrimages to, to the Holy land, but have you ever been to world youth day? No, no, that's an experience I haven't had i've I've been to one and just on the subject of vocations because this this idea of unification right brought about in that case, there's nothing traumatic that's triggering it, but it's in my experience, it was just the vis the, the visibility of this super young, rich, diverse international like scene and having that be so impactful you know in the, in in the same way that this maybe or in a similar way that these kind of tragic events can sometimes be but how many vocations come out of those kind of gatherings my wife and i are thinking about uh going to the one in portugal next year uh but you know th- they're just beautiful events but that kind of give you you know that vision of what's kind of really happening you know and and it's it's very inspiring it can be it can be very inspirational
0: Yeah, no, I I regret that that hasn't been uh, something I've experienced. I know a lot of people who have been and who have, you know, it's been life-changing. It's interesting, the one in Portugal, I was just talking with someone this weekend um, who said, you know, we have a World Youth Day coming up. You don't hear very much about it. Yeah,
1: no, you don't, actually. (laughs) Everyone's been
0: talking about the Eucharistic revival and all of this stuff, but World Youth Day has sort of faded into the background.
1: Yeah. I was super blown away by that. It was right after Pope Francis got elected. Um, and it was, I think it may have been his first or among his first kind of big public, um, you you know, ceremonies. And there was 3 million people, most of them in their early twenties, maybe late teens that were there. Um, and the, the, there's a final mass, um, that kind of closes all the proceedings And it was supposed to be in this massive open kind of um, sort of like a field, like a campground, like this massive thing. But the night before it poured, I mean, torrential Brazil, you know, rainforest type rain and it flooded the entire thing. So the organizers had to at the last minute say, no, we're going to do it at at Copacabana at the beach. And to this day, now, if you Google, you know, World Youth Day, Copacabana, you can actually see the pictures taken from the helicopters of what that scene was of 3 million people that were all gathered together for that final mass. And and my first thought, honestly, because I was, just, I, I, that, I literally immediately go to the logistics, I'm like, how are we going to hand out communion to 3 million <laughs> people in an hour? You know, how many, how many extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion are going to pull that one off? But it was, it was such a lesson to me because the way that they did it was they have these sort of tents all along the beach, every, I don't know, half mile or so they would have these Mm. tents and there were inside the tents, there were priests and deacons who were concelebrating the mass with the Pope. And it was just brilliant to me. It was like, wow. So it's like, and it was almost a vision of the church, right? You've got sort of, you know, Rome and then you've got parishes. And so all the people at the time of communion would just gather around their little local tent, their little local parish. And the priest would give communion and the deacons would give communion to the people who were there. And, and it got done, literally. I mean, it, it may have been a 90-minute mass, so a little bit longer, but 3 million people received communion at the same time. This is that's mind-blowing.
0: A, that's incredible. That's beautiful. Yeah. I wish I could have been there. Well, we, <laughs> what need, a we need blessing.
1: We need more youth things. Um, t- talk to us a little bit about your—is uh, y- it, it a new book or has it already launched, the St. Joseph one?
0: Ah, Yes, that came out. I was so happy. I went to the uh, LA Religious Ed Congress, mm-hmm. and it was March 19th, which was the Feast of Saint Joseph. And the book had just arrived at at our at our booth. It, they were not sure if it was going to be published in time for the Feast of Saint Joseph, and it was. So I was absolutely thrilled, and uh, I've I've been so happy with the response it's gotten. Mm. And you know, I thought when. When Ave Maria Press approached me and asked me if I was interested in doing this book, uh, I was, you know, looking at the calendar and thinking, "Well, gee, the, the year of Saint Joseph is almost over. Aren't we sort of missing the curve here?" Mm. Um, but they thought that this this would have legs, and so I said, "Okay," and uh, spent, you know, a few months sort of praying and meditating and researching and and thinking about Saint Joseph and these. The Seven Sorrows, which is an ancient devotion that's uh, been lost to a lot of people
1: yeah,
0: but it's meditating on moments of his life and what they can teach us about our own lives and seeing it was a chance for me to really discover or rediscover just how contemporary Saint Joseph is mm. and what he can teach us about our own time and our own lives and uh, I got a lot out of it you know and I think in many ways, God gave me this book uh, for me, not just for the people that I'm writing for.
1: The, the, the book is called Befriending St. Joseph. What, what, yeah. what does it look like to befriend him?
0: It's realizing that he's one of us. You know, we look at the Holy Family, and now as—I uh, don't know when this will, will be posted, but we're you know, heading into Christmas, and we're thinking about uh, the Holy Family— and you look at the three people who comprise that, and two of them were perfect, and one of them wasn't. <laughs> and that's the one, you know, he doesn't say anything in the, in the scripture, and he's very quiet, and he's sort of on the sidelines, and we kind of forget about him. And we've, we've made him into this, this plaster saint, almost literally, mm. and uh, don't really think about, you know, what it means that he wasn't the perfect one. He had struggles. He sinned. He had temptations. He had weaknesses. And the things he had to deal with are the kinds of things that a lot of us have to deal with, Mm. Uh, with, you know, uh, not having a steady job. He had his little carpenter shop, and he probably thought that was where he was going to spend the rest of his life in this quiet corner of the world and live happily ever after with his little family. And you know, you make plans and God laughs (laughs) and and God laughed. And he said, no, Joseph, I have something else I want you to do. And he just completely trusted. Mm. And so he, uh, he had to, you know, suddenly become a father to a pregnant virgin. I'm sure he never expected that, (laughs) take his family to Bethlehem and then flee from Bethlehem to Egypt and create some kind of a living or mm. way of living in a strange country in a strange strange place and then flee back to Nazareth and start all over again and then go to Jerusalem and then go missing for his missing child but he did it with such trust and such utter fidelity and just basically let go and let God and um it's, it's a great inspiration to me uh, at times when I'm, I'm worried or anxious or concerned about something. I just have to give it to God and trust that he's going to take me where he wants me to go. And I'm dealing with that now with the selling of our home, which is not going that well. Right? <laughs> you know, it's on the market, and I'm still here living in Queens. And I, you know, my wife is much better about this than I am. But yeah. I really have to just give it over to God and say, it's on your timetable, not mine.
1: Yeah. Part of what I like about St. Joseph, to your point is, is sort of silence, at least scripturally, but you always felt his presence, right? Uh, At least that's how I grew up. And I grew up in a, in a Hispanic household and, you know, the saints played a very prominent role in my, in my young life and my initial upbringing. And in particular St. Joseph, he always looked to me in images as, I mean, obviously paternal, that, that one was pretty clear, but just this sort of presence of kind of having everybody's back, you know? Um, and it was something very comforting about him and i couldn't maybe put it into words when i was younger but it was something that i always recognized like this figure that was you know vigilant and attentive if if not you know chatty but um but was was sort of always there and, you know and i got to tell you like you know to, there there's obviously we've got those moments of like you know i don't know what the heck is going to happen and and um and he he always just had that that kind of presence and, you know, continues to have that kind of presence, but a lot of people don't know him. Is there a particular virtue that you identify with him or maybe, or, or maybe something you think he's particularly um, strong at helping us today in this culture and th- at this moment kind of reconnect with?
0: Well, I think there are two qualities that, uh, that I really appreciate. One is trust trusting in god um you know completely like i said let go and let god and you know trusting in in the messages of angels listening to your dreams um and just believing that god is going to work it out mm. and the other one is courage because he he had to do things that must have been terrifying um you know fleeing into egypt and taking on this uh this young family in a way that he had not expected yeah Um, and, you know, looking for his son when he was missing, uh, and not, you know, most of us in a circumstance like that would be running around going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Absolutely. (laughs) It's my fault. I did this wrong. Oh no, I (laughs) lost, I lost God. (laughs) I am going to be in so much trouble. Uh, but you know, he, he just sucked it up and and he did it and did it with such, um, you know, sincerity and trust and and courage. An interesting conversation I have with someone after the book came out is when you look at Joseph's life, you realize that popular depictions of him, to the contrary, this could
1: not have been an old man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was was going to ask you if you were an old Joseph or young Joseph.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm a young guy. Me
1: too. Um, Yeah.
0: You know, there's this ancient tradition of the church that he was 99 years old or something, or he may have had another family, and maybe he did, but... An old man could not have traveled around the way that he sure. did as, as quickly and efficiently and as courageously and, uh, with so much ease. I mean, it was an arduous life and, um, and he made it happen. Um, so I, I think it was a young guy.
1: Yeah. So do I. <laughs> um, it, it also makes the, the idea of their, their marriage kind of in a way richer because if it's happening all in the kind of prime of youth and nevertheless, it's this, you know, promise to God and this consecrated, you know, virgin, uh, you know, throughout the, throughout the marriage, it makes it almost more um, like deeper and sweeter to have put those things aside rather than saying, Oh, I just, you know, I've already been married. I have a bunch of kids and now I'm older and I need kind of a caretaker and that's what Mary was. And so the whole, you know, the whole nuptial piece of it is sort of missing just because it's sort of it, it makes it more um, more intense, that love for God, that trust in God, you know, to set aside some of those rights of matrimony um, you know, for for him. To me, it does. I love what you said though earlier about the idea of Saint Joseph um, you know, being true to his imagination and listening to his dreams. I was talking to somebody recently who told me this is one of the young families that we help. And most of these families come from very kind of unstable backgrounds and they've got all kinds of drama in their background and a lot of broken relationships and different things. But I was talking to her and she said, you know, I pray to God, but he doesn't, he doesn't ever answer me. But then sometimes I'll get you know, calls from my mom or my brother or I'll have a dream or whatever it is. And so like I just do what that says. And I'm like, well, hang on a second. Time out. <laughs> Time out. How do you think that God talks to us? You know what I mean? How do you think that he communicates? He communicates in these faculties that he's given us and these relationships that he's given us. But that thing I'd never put it together with St. Joseph that it is kind of in a way, um, that you know, this kind of invitation to consider our dreams and our aspirations and the things that come to us, you know, throughout lives as, you know, um, as the will of God and discern those things as the will of God.
0: Yeah, and, you know, what, what you were talking about earlier about the, uh, the relationship between Joseph and Mary, I really do think it helps to, to view them through the lens of a married couple mm. and a mother and father. And uh, as people who were very much contemporaries. I mean, he may have been several years older than her, but I think that they were affectionate and they were tender with each other and they trusted each other and respected each other and loved each other. Uh, Just when when they uh, arrive at the temple looking for Jesus and they find him and Mary says, your father and I have been looking for you. It's not I've been looking for you and he's been tagging along. He's been tagging along. He was was
1: back in the caravan just uh, hanging (laughs) out. Yeah,
0: He's having his afternoon nap. Um, But there was a sense of, you know, the the collaborative nature of their relationship, like a good marriage, Mm. and they're in this together. And um, I I think that's something very sweet and very beautiful. I tried to convey that a little bit in my book, the sense of this, uh, how they communicate with each other, how they listen to each other, how they love each other. Is something that you don't see expressed very much. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember preaching about this one time. We talked about the seven uh, sorrows of Mary. And we know the seven sorrows of Saint Joseph is part of my book, but I think there was an eighth sorrow of Mary, which was the death of Joseph, Mm. Uh, which goes unmentioned. Yeah. You know, she lost this man who was such a part of her life and who helped raise the Son of God. And uh, was with her through thick and thin, through all these these sorrows and joys, and that must have been one more sword that pierced her heart.
1: That's beautiful. Never thought yeah. about that. That's a great uh, podcast title too. Deacon Greg, like the uh, <laughs> the eighth sorrow. I, I'd, I'd I would subscribe to that. <laughs> But but before we get to our, our final segment, wait, what I I wanted to, you know, I know you've got this impending God willing move and, and, you know, you've got a lot of things always going on preaching and teaching and traveling and speaking and interviews and blogs and all that kind of stuff. But as you, as you kind of think about this uh, next year, what's, what's something that's on your mind that you, that you might want to tackle, uh, in a different way, what's upcoming for you?
0: Oh gosh, well, the whole notion of of relocating uh is going to be interesting. You know, my wife and I have lived in the place where we're living now for 25 years and I've spent most of my adult life in New York. Um even though I grew up in Maryland, uh I still consider myself a Maryland boy. I always will. But to go from a place like New York to a place like Florida, if God wills it, uh is going to require a, some adjustment, I'm sure. Um you know, I, as we were getting ready to do this move, uh, I ended up putting a lot of winter clothes in storage thinking I'd never wear them again. (laughs) And I decided to go on a diet because I'm going to be wearing, I'm going to be wearing less clothes, less clothes. Yeah. (laughs) You know, a lot of shorts and t-shirts, uh, hasn't really worked out that way. You know, you make plans and God laughs, but I think, um, there's, it'll be interesting to write about that experience yeah. and going to a different place, uh, geographically and maybe spiritually and, you know, how it makes me look at the world, uh, a little bit differently. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens and how it turns out.
1: Uh, I have a, I have a notion that we're going to pick up on a lot of that stuff on, uh, on the deacon's bench and uh, the rest <laughs> of the things that you're, uh, that you're up to. I can imagine how that's going to color your perspective and I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to, uh, to whatever comes out of that. We'll include um, obviously in our show notes, links to um, the book links to, um, to the Deacon's bench site. Uh, you got everybody listening should definitely follow uh, Deacon Greg, uh, super interesting, um, you know, insights and points of view on a variety of different things. And um, I've been doing it for a number of years and I recommend it um, highly. So uh, you know, Deacon from, from my perspective, uh, continued uh, prosperity on everything that you're doing. Uh, your voice is an important one, especially coming out of the media morass that we both came from. I think it's uh, it's very meaningful to have people who have that experience now, you know, kind of putting those gifts to uh, to 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 the benefit of the vineyard. So, count on our continued prayers for the prosperity of everything that you're doing. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Are you ready to play? Wait, what? Wait, wait, don't tell me. (laughs) Wait, wait, don't tell me. It's similar, but it's called Wait What. All right. These are three tailor-made questions for you, Deacon Greg. Um, And we'll start with an easy one. True or false? Actually, we we just talked about him on the show. The great Thomas Merton, originally Father Lewis, who was a Trappist monk, a poet, a prolific writer. He actually wrote, I read a stat that he wrote 60 books and he had posthumously, he had had enough material for another 60. So like 120 potential books. Um, And he was one of the most important American Catholic writers of the 20th century. But, Deacon Greg, he also had a series of unusual incidents during his life at the monastery. Remember, this is a true or false question. One of these incidents involved him taking a joyride in the monastery's jeep, during which Merton, acting in a possibly manic state, according to witnesses, erratically slid around the road and almost caused a head-on collision true or false true bingo True-a. absolutely <laughs>
0: you know you're merton i think uh he may have written about that in the sign of jonas
1: oh there uh, you go well i have not read one it
0: of, one of his that's that's great because it's like a sequel to the seven-story mountain and it's written as a journal of um of his first years uh in the monastery mm. like maybe the first 10 years or so it's, it's really interesting.
1: Well, it's great. So you're one for one. You're batting a thousand. Okay. Um, uh, and, right. and by the way, the only reason I even knew about Corpus Christi in Manhattan is because I read The Seven Story Mountain. So I, I was like, oh, I got to go check that out. Um, that's great.
0: And the font is still there where he was baptized.
1: Yes, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Which, it's question number two. Which of these is false, Deacon Greg, about your new, potentially new, God willing, home city of Orlando? Which of these is false? Is it A... Though there is no official documentation on how Orlando received its name, legend has it it was named Orlando after the character in Shakespeare's As You Like It. Is it B? To fund the demolition of its old city hall, Orlando enlisted the help of Hollywood producer Joel Silver, who blew up the building for the opening scene of Lethal Weapon 3. Or is it C, the Orlando Magic NBA team was almost known as the Orlando Squeeze when it was first being formed? Which of those three is false?
0: Wow. Uh, I'm going to say the first one.
1: That sadly is incorrect, my friend. Uh, It is actually, there is actually no official documentation on the Orlando name, but but many people do believe that it was named after a character in Shakespeare's As You Like It. The correct answer is C. The Orlando Magic was never going to be the Orlando Squeeze, Uh, although, ironically, one of the early names for it was the Orlando Juice in, you know, I guess, uh, reference to all the orange groves everywhere. Um, Said
0: the wrong way, it could have literary religious connotations that's right exactly exactly <laughs> you have to be very careful
1: very careful how you pronounce that okay well you're guaranteed to get this next one right deacon because uh this there's always a time machine question on the show so here it goes and it's a, it's you can fill in the in the blank so you get an opportunity to travel forward in time in the united states in the year 2225 so about you know a couple hundred years couple centuries into the future after centuries of caustic battles between media companies, regulators, consumers, and platforms, a referendum is passed that outlaws centralized publication or distribution of any media. The only content across all platforms that exist in the U.S. is generated solely by individuals. All Catholic media, as a result, are now illegal. Given your background, your gifts— and your need to evangelize and face with the daunting challenge of getting the word out on the gospel, what do you do?
0: <laughs> well, I guess I, I go back to uh, St. Paul and write letters. <laughs> send emails lots of emails to people to individual groups you know the uh, saint paul's first email to the corinthians <laughs> things like that it would have to get back down to basics and get back to the roots of who we are it would be one-on-one preaching uh preaching to small groups in the catacombs uh it would you know be back to the future in a lot of ways
1: Sounds like a successful uh, strategy Actually, you might be able to just continue doing Some of what you're doing now Because you are an individual voice And you're kind of getting out there in, in, in a variety of different ways But I like that kind of small groups thing And it, it is important to hearken us back to uh, You know, how things got kicked off to begin with Because it seemed to work pretty good um, You know, maybe, we, maybe going back wouldn't be a bad idea But, um, well, thanks for playing Wait What Deacon And what a privilege to have you on the show A real blessing um, Really appreciate it once again
0: Well, thank you. I had a blast.
1: If you're listening to our voice, that means it is time to subscribe. Please share this episode with somebody else who can benefit from the stuff that we've discussed. There's a lot there to unpack, and we'll see you again next time on Living the Call.